So welcome to the AI Edge podcast. And today we receive two guests. We have Baskar and we have Ilya. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Damon. So guys, could you tell me more about you? Yeah, uh, maybe I can go first. So hey, hi, everyone. Um, I'm a data scientist and uh, with more than, you know, approximately nine years in the industry now. And I've been you know, working in many different domains, including, you know, retail, FMCG, airlines. And for the last five years now, I've been working as a quant data scientist where, you know, mm -hmm. I build predictive models using AIML to predict financial markets. And I also, um, you know, teach as well. Teaching is one of my passion. And I have course, courses on Coursera and MIT professional in education. And uh, yeah, so this is a very brief introduction about myself and yeah, excited to be here. Devin. Great. What about you, Ilya? All right. So my name is Ilya Bayemetev. I'm a chief of product for a company called Constructor Technology. We're in Switzerland, um, although I live in the US. And uh, we are at, at the company and, uh, you know, there is this long tradition of using AI in the tech uh, with, with its up and downs and it goes back to the 70s. And then uh, ChatGPT basically completely broke every trend and uh, infused like some new energy into this, uh, into this field. So... Uh, we can talk. We can definitely talk about how AI uh, was used in education in in tech and will be used in tech. And what are the hopes and what are the expectations and all? Well, let's let's go for it then. So tell us how the AI was used before ChatGPT and how it is used now. Right. So in education, uh, uh, the primary use of AI was, uh, it's called an intelligent tutoring system. So essentially the, the, uh, uh, you know, the ultimate dream sort of all the, of the, of the computer teacher, right. Is to have somebody always with you, like, uh, you know, Alexander the Great has had Aristotle, basically his partner in, partner in life up, and up until the moment, right. And, uh, that, uh, somebody, uh, will, will be constantly sort of looking over your shoulder, right? And uh, somehow improve your learning outcomes, right? That's the, that's the dream. Uh, it's, a, it's a dream because we, you cannot possibly, and I mean, unless you are, you know, king of Macedonia or whatever, uh, you cannot actually uh, hire people to be constantly with you or with your kids, right? Like to just uh, constantly with them, teaching them and whatnot. I mean, that was available to, like I said, to kings mostly and to nobility in the, in, the mid, in the Middle Ages, but not to ordinary people and not today. Now, um, the one of the most popular paradigms was with ITS, intelligent tutoring system, right? So basically, you build a, a domain model, right, which is the, the map of knowledge, so to speak, right? Uh, and it includes mm -hmm. also... Uh, it includes like concepts that you need them to understand and also how to get from understanding concept A to concept B, right? And concept C is a directed graph and uh, along the edges of the graph is the, you know, exercises you need to do to improve that kind of skill, right? To, to, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to move along this thing, learning curve, uh, learning path. And, uh, it actually worked pretty well, uh. To be mm -hmm. honest, uh, the problem was that you, uh, uh, there are several components to ATS versus domain model. Second is, is a student model that reflects your understanding. So basically at every concept, right, you can have like a mirror of this graph that, that every concept has like your, uh, usually a probability sort of, of you understanding this concept, uh, you know, to the fullest, right? And then uh, there's a tutoring model. Uh, which is how do I specifically get you from uh, like con considering 
what you need to learn in a domain model and what you know in a CRM model, right? How do I improve your uh, sort of your state of uh, state of understanding? Uh, now the problem was that the problem is that uh, for every domain, uh, which is basically every course, um, you will have to rebuild this uh, the domain model and the tutoring model, right? And you will do it by hand. So basically, you need a team of experts. I don't know, three PhD students, basically, right? And and one professor uh, to do it, and it will take them a year. And uh, considering the number of uh, average number of courses in a uh, bachelor program in the US University is what, 40, 45, right? So uh, that's just insurmountable amount of work. So ideas has worked very well, uh, but uh, it was mostly either it was used for, let's say, for school, because if you build one for Algebra 2, you can use it at every school, I mean, right, in every yeah. school everywhere, and uh, it will be reusable, which people, some of the people do, actually. Uh, or it, it's impossible to build because every course at every, uh, you know, college is different, right? So in, in college, it's very much a personal sort of a message from a teacher, from a professor. Uh, so, uh, and GPT, of course, changed all of it completely, right? Mm -hmm. Because it sort of knows everything. So this yeah. domain model, uh, and even the uh, tutoring model, because we all have some materials there, right? And it was trained. It all exists somewhere inside. The, the uh, problem is now, can we extract it using the props, right? Also, uh, and of course, the quality of the of the output and whatnot, but but the uh, so the, the problem was completely flipped on its head, right? So in terms of, instead, it was a very laborious, tedious, long, uh, very kind of, you know, uh, uh, long and expensive process of manual labor of highly qualified people before. And now it, more, it becomes more of a, we can probably compile these prompts pretty fast, but can we trust the result, right? So how do we actually get the, how do we make sure that the result we're getting from is actually good quality? The, the issue here is that this ITF will be, as, as soon as you build it, it will be left alone with the student, right? And we know that uh, these models, they're glitching and hallucinating and, and do some, and sometimes start, start saying, it's going to stop that uh, we don't want to hear, <laughs> or we don't want to be taught yeah. to the students, right? So, so that becomes a, so basically the, it, it completely changed the, the sort of kill them and the sort of issues surrounding this, uh, this thing, right? And the second, can, uh, can I, can I interrupt yeah, yeah. you uh, one, one second, just because I would like to make sure I understand completely. You said a lot of things, so let me let me ask you first, like what does ITS stand for? Intelligent Tutoring System. I see. Intelligent I see. Tutoring so, System. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a common, in, in tech, it's sort of in this, uh, you know, uh, in this uh, field, scientific field, field of research, it's a common act. Yeah, I'm, I'm not very familiar with that, that domain, so. And uh, so I just wanted to come back to the actual model that was originally there. So you have a graph of concepts, mm -hmm. right? And this graph is built using experts. Yep. There's no machine learning in building that graph, right? No, because, uh, you know, basically up until large language models, right, the, the arrival of them, it was very, very hard. Not actually, I'm not even sure it was possible with any sort of decent quality to basically feed a textbook into the computer. And get like yeah. a uh, like a concept graph uh, out of it. You will probably I have to that... spend as much time editing it afterwards and verifying uh, as you would just build it uh, by yourself if you're an expert. So yeah, very likely. Yeah. So then, as the student progress, 
you're able to build some probability of understanding to go from one node to the other. Is that correct or? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you as you progress, right? So essentially, uh, what happens? You are given certain problems to solve, right? Because that that's the benchmark. That's the only thing we know how to verify if you know something, right? And again, uh, this will be this will have to be built by an expert, like the complexity of the problem, which skills. Uh, it's not it's not just concept, uh, concepts map, right? The domain model. It's also skills that you need to have. Like if you mm -hmm. if you if we're talking about like I don't know multivariable multivariable whatever it's called in English calculus, right? You need to be able to to solve certain types of equations, uh, differential equations, and yeah. do some similar symbolic manipulations. So uh, this skills also, right? So uh, when you compile this uh, problems. Right, you need to as an expert, you need to specify which skills they develop, uh, and the complexity, and, and basically all sorts of this complex metadata. Mm. It, it's not that complex for people who uh, who are teaching at the universities, right? Because they kind of informally know it, but it still takes a lot yeah. of time to sort of to bring it to the con to the level of actually uh, to to the to verbalize it, right? It, uh, of course. Another issue there is. Uh, you need several, usually several of them, because usually there, there's a well-known, there are there have been well-known studies that if you ask an expert to sort of verbalize their uh, domain area, right, so their, their domain, uh, they will only uh, tell you about 30% of what they actually know. So if you, if you mm. be, be, for example, if you ask, uh, you know, I don't know, the Puskajit to tell us all the important concepts concept in, in data science, right, he will come up with a list, uh, but then actually he knows at least three times more than he would be able to just write it off the top of the head, or off of the course. top of his head. Of course. So as as soon as he starts getting into like solving real problems, say so you'll find out that he actually missed a lot of things. It just didn't come up to him, like in in a yeah, yeah. famous kind of verbal explicit form. So you need several experts that will sort of uh, uh, you know work with each other and kind of extract this knowledge. And, and yeah, that's a, anyway. So I don't know. So you you have you have problems that can be associated to each of the nodes in that graph. Mm -hmm. And as the student progress, you're able to establish a probability of understanding by how much the student was able to solve in terms of problems. Yeah, De for the right? degree of understanding, yes, probability of understanding. So basically, if you know these things pretty well, right? So we, we think you will know that thing also. Uh, you will be pretty good at that too. I see. And that's usually, so if it's a usually simple Bayesian graph, basically. So it's like a Mm -hmm. So by, by establishing how much you know for a certain concept, you're able to understand what will be the next node that we should send the student to mm -hmm. because the student would be able to complete his understanding of the subject by addressing that slightly similar node. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So basically to develop certain skills, right? We give the student these problems to solve and then uh, by the, we assess uh, how the answer, right? And by the quality of the answers, we can assess the overall knowledge. And of course we can, uh, if the, if this sort of level of knowledge is not sufficient, we can just uh, keep giving problems, right? And keep like mm. developing these skills. And actually also it's a very uh, established kind of fact that uh, you need to, you need several kind of, several attempts to, to build up a skill. I see. And uh, the, are you, are you going? Are you saying that uh, this is machine learning that is deciding yeah. Uh, what? This is, yeah. 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 So the, the the machine learning aspect is only in deciding what is the next uh, node to learn about. Yeah, that's pretty much how it just works, right? So the, the output is uh, the, the, that what what 
set of problems do I need to give to the student to develop the skills they're they are not yet proficient enough in, right? I see. To achieve I see, the final sort of to achieve the final level of understanding. It kind of it 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 sounds kind of simplified, and uh, the the problem, of course, is that if if you know what a concept inventory is, uh, it's a it's a qualitative kind of test of of your knowledge. There is a very famous test called called uh, force concept inventory, and uh, basically you can be very good at solving problems, meaning uh, recognizing a certain pattern, uh, recognizing what formula it fits. Uh, you know, pulling up this formula, putting the numbers in and getting the answer and still don't understand the physics, uh, for example, of the, of the, yeah, of yeah. the Newtonian, like a simple free Newton law, right? But, uh, but the, yeah, that's serious. But I mean, you can, basically, you can include this with force concept inventory also in a, in a part of problems, right? So it, it just depends on the problems you give to sure. the students and the method of assessment. But yeah, that's how it works. And uh, how do you ensure that the student cover all the different points in that graph? By giving them all the problems, do all the all sorts of problems. Okay. So, like I said, it's an art, right? So, com co compiling the the problems that uh, sort of the, uh, uh, so you have this graph of concepts, right? But you need yeah. to sort of cover it with a minimal effort, right? So, so mini with minimal number of problems that uh, that that will be given to you. Uh, and uh, you need to develop all the skills. So that's not art of the teacher. How do you basically... So, uh, mm -hmm. Okay, but but uh, sure, it's the art of the teacher, but we have here an algorithm that is deciding where to send the student to when it comes to the next concept to learn. So how do you have, how do you ensure with this algorithm that the student is going through each of the different nodes in that graph? Uh, but... Like I said, right? So you imagine you gave them a set of problems that develops like, like I don't know, five skills, right? So the, the, the basically yep. the, the root is like zero, and then you need to have mm -hmm. these kind of you need to have the right of understanding these kind of five concepts, right? So you need to give them problems that develop understanding of those five concepts and skills related to it. So it can be just one problem that develops all, or it can be ten. You need, to, you need maybe ten, right? So you basically give give it to give it to all of them. So at this ages, right? You basically specify what what is the exercise I need to give to that person, right? To develop the skill, and that kind of similar to you know if if you uh, I don't know if you're doing fitness, right? You could do like a biceps or whatever or something, or you mm -hmm. could do like a full body exercise, right? And uh, uh, you know that develop maybe every, everything at once. And that's an art of uh, your personal trainer or here an art of a teacher to arrive to the destination in a minimal sort of uh, minimal number of steps, minimal effort, right? Because you can beat students up with like a, a thousand uh, isolated exercises that develop like a, just a certain technique, right? Which is probably very boring and not very efficient. Or you can, that's why textbooks, uh, you know, there are some golden sort of golden gold standard textbooks on, on the subject. But there are even fewer and even more valuable gold textbooks than uh, a gold gold standard textbooks or not textbooks, the problem books, exercise books. They actually even sort of they it, it's a uh, sort of the uh, uh, there is a implicit understanding that to, to combine a, a book with full of great exercises, a great mm. problem set is actually harder to write a good textbook. So, but I think I'm still confused about something. So. Mm -hmm. Let me make sure I ask the question correctly. So I think I understand that we have an algorithm 
And we have also a teacher that is part of mm -hmm. the equation. The teacher seems to be able to uh, help the student focus on some set of exercise, and the algorithm seems to be able to uh, decide or to uh, advise what should be the next uh, concept to learn. Mm -hmm. And potentially, the teacher is going to follow that advice or not, right? Uh, so, mm -hmm. go ahead. The next concept to learn is actually kind of predefined by the course itself, right? The, okay. What, what's not predefined is uh, you sort of need to, uh, as you go along this graph, right, as you're progressing along the course as a student, the system starts, recognize, starts recognizing that you might be not as proficient as required in certain things that were in the past, for example. So it will, it will have to sort of give you more exercises to bring the stuff to the required level or something like that. So that's where okay, the activity comes from, right? That's where that's the activity sort of that, that, that enters the system. It's not so much in, in what is the next concept to learn, because if you have a co course on, I don't know, you know, the game theory, right? You, you're learning things like you're learning like I don't know, Nash equilibrium and whatnot, right? So uh, it, it's a more or less somebody has already decided. But uh, what okay. will be the problems you will be solving? That could be that could be modified. Okay, to, so the model the model is giving you your weaknesses and your strengths. Yes, it's trying to develop your weaknesses. Basically, it's trying to uh, detect and develop your weaknesses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think I understand. So the model is is, is purely about insight uh, for the the student and the teacher to decide what will be the next set of exercise to work on. More or less, yes. Yeah. Okay. 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 And so, so I think I understand where the machine learning uh, used to be or is, and when it comes to how it is done now. I would assume that where ChatGPT or large language model can help is in building that knowledge base of concepts. Yes, but uh, it's actually not even clear that you need to build it anymore, right? Because it's inside. So basically, it, it is inside GPT already. So uh, the form of the tutoring that is considered to be the most efficient is called Socratic dialogue, right? So it's a Socratic tutor uh, tutoring. So main, meaning that. The system doesn't just tell you, aha, I see you don't quite understand, you know, A, B, and C. So go, you know, sit down and solve some problems. And then I look at the, your solutions and I, I basically, and we will just rinse and repeat. Uh, the, uh, the most efficient tutoring is considered to be uh, basically asking questions to the student, right? In a way that they discover the solution, the right solution themselves, and they understand they then, then understand by kind of reflecting and whatnot what they've done, uh, what the, what kind of mistakes they've done. So that that's that's considered to be by a hundred years of like psychology experiment, the pedagogical experiments. That's sort of considered to be the more effective uh, way of teaching uh, from the standpoint of sort of the quality of the outcomes, right? And uh, with ATS, it's actually hard to do kind of because it it, it requires sort of the the additional sort of level of uh, intelligence, uh, I mean, I'm putting it in quotes, uh, from the models that were not available. Uh, GPT-4, you can actually prompt it, like, be a Socratic tutor or be a tutor and ask me questions, right? You can, can literally say, be a Socratic tutor, let's have a Socratic dialogue. Uh, and it will start, it will actually do it. Although, uh, 
the typical problem with ChatGPT, as you guys probably know, uh, even ChatGPT4, the latest one, when you talk to it, you, you, you have a feeling that you're talking to, uh, like a high school student, uh, that just read all the Wikipedia last night and basically just gives, gives you the answers like, like this, right? So there's no depth. There's no really real kind of, it's, it's very hard to extract something, uh, like profoundly insightful from it. Maybe there is nothing, maybe it's not there. Or maybe it's, it might be there, but it's not in the mainstream, meaning the probably this kind of probabilistic uh, approach, right? It gives you sort of the, it, it tends to give you the mainstream answer or it goes so off that it hallucinates. It never, uh, there, there is no like originality kind of path or whatever inside, built inside these models. So, uh, but yeah, essentially you can right now, it, it can right now emulate the Socratic tutor. The problem is how to make it, how to do it with a good quality, right? Because the, the, uh, the uh, sort of human art of being a Socratic tutor is that your questions back to the student need to be very insightful. They, they need to they need to incite the insight, right? And so they need to sort of induce the, this kind of thinking process that will lead to to gaining new insights. Uh, it, it's kind of very hard, and not not every human actually can do it. Uh, I mean, not not every human teacher can actually do it well. Like uh, let's say that, right? Let's mm -hmm. let's make sure I understand. Uh... So let's say I ask a question to a student yeah. and the student answer. And instead of saying that the answer is right or wrong, I'm asking again another question that will push the student to think further about the initial question, right? In a certain way. Right? So, so for example, imagine you're teaching like history of the United States, which is the country I'm in right now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, let's say the history of like Civil War, 1870s or something. I'm, I'm not originally from here, so I don't know if they track big. And then basically you ask a student, tell me like, what were the most important kind of events during this war, right? And then they meet like one or two, the new thing are the most important. And basically, uh, when they give you the list and something is missing, right? You may ask, and do you think there's, do, do you think this period was like quiet and, and there, there was nothing that changed the course or, I mean, impacted the course or something, right? And then they maybe start to remember. So basically it, it, it doesn't, it, it has to be very sort of indirect and, uh, not very leading, right? So in, in judicial terms, there are leading questions, right? And, and they're just questions. So, uh, you, you don't. You need to be not very leading in your questions, but you need to just kind of give them the hints that there might be something yeah. they need to go and discover by themselves. And that's very hard to and, do efficiently. And, and within the context of ITS or education, the type of questions that need to be asked are problems, problem sets that need to be solved, right? They are not like simple questions like that, correct? Y yes. So, uh, well, it's still... You know, this, again, we, we only have the model of education we, we have, which is you sort of ingest some material, you go solve problems, right? You go do the exercises you discuss. So it's, it's, uh, uh, I mean, the lectures are now kind of being, uh, diminished more or less, right? To, uh, although it, I, again, it's still, it's a performance. So because it's a performance, it could be engaging and, and uh, insightful. Uh, I mean, it's a performance by a, by a professor, right? But. Anyway, so we know, again, from a hundred years of psychology that working on the projects is better than working on just some kind of solving problems that have no context. We know that working mm -hmm. in groups is more efficient and all that, right? So, and, but we also know that working with the tutor is super efficient. Now, uh, uh, right. So 
all of this kind of comes into play. And um, okay, sorry, what was the question? I I went somewhere. <laughs> Basically, I'm asking I'm asking if so. Originally, we talked about concept that the student had to learn, and uh, we were assessing how much the student were was uh, knowing about the concept by looking at the different problems yeah. that the student solved. So when when you talked about how ChatGPT can provide a lift in helping students uh, when it comes to learning, I would assume that ChatGPT would actually providing the problem sets like we talked about in the context of ITS. Yeah, so in the context of ITS, it's uh, like I said, it's pretty simple, right? So basically, ideas. Imagine it's actually they they were not that intelligent uh, in quotes as I as I'm as I'm going to sort of uh, describe it to you, but just imagine, right? So it looked at at the at the solutions that you gave it, and it sort mm -hmm. of understands that you have certainly uh, insufficient understanding of certain concepts, right? And then mm -hmm. basically, it may be it may tell you that. I think that you have insufficient understanding of these concepts. Therefore, I think you need to you need to uh, you know do these exercises to solve more problems. Yeah. Basically, that will and, yeah. and right. So, the, so the Socratic tutor, which is now possible, I think maybe we don't know actually because we we we're still experimenting. Uh, and by I mean like with good quality and like good uh, effectiveness, right? Uh, it will not give you the new set of problems right away. It will engage in a dialogue with you. Right. And not in the dialogue that starts like you made a mistake, but in the dialogue, like, let's examine your solution. Right. So explain to me why, like, why this, this, why such, such and such. Right. And then mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. you sort of student, as you go through this experience, I mean, I don't know, guys, anybody, I think most, most anybody who actually uh, had a really good teacher in their lives. And unfortunately, it's a, it's an increasingly rare <laughs> Actually, it's an increasingly rare uh, sort of occurrence. Uh, you would probably understand uh, the difference between like a regular teacher who basically acts like, I don't know, like more or less like a chat GPT. They go in the class, mm. they tell you something, you listen, they, they give you very sort of shallow kind of uh, Q and it, the interaction is usually very shallow. Right, so yeah. you you made a, you made a mistake, like uh, it, it actually such and such. So you know, sit down. Thank you for your whatever for your question. Uh, but a good teacher, they will actually uh, engage with a much more meaningful dialogue. The meaningful dialogue is far in, in in our lives because it requires a lot of time, both from student and the teacher. Right, so uh, and uh, the. Um, these dialogues usually would happen in either extracurricular uh, activities, like if you go to some kind of math circle, kind of Russian style, for example, right? Or, um, I don't know, something like that, basically, right? So when mm -hmm. they, there is like very students, they work on something uh, difficult, like not really, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of, you know, American school. Uh, kind of problems, but actually something um, something much more sort of uh, involved, and and then the teacher will engage in this kind of dialogue with you if they want to really develop. If they're not just prepping you for yes. SAT, SAT, right? So that that's the and that's the that's the desire. That's that's how that's what we want to to get out of ChatGPT because it, it seems to be uh, the potential seems to be there, right? Uh, is it possible? We still don't know. 
So I I'm still trying to make sure I understand. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, the student needs to learn on his own, and the student needs to solve some problems. And this is something that will be disconnected from an interaction with uh, a teacher or a tutor, right? And ChatGPT here or large language model could be used to probe the student in looking maybe at some problem sets, asking some questions to the student to uncover some potential weaknesses. And I think the goal would be for the LLM to advise where would be the next set of subjects to learn about and the next set of problems to work on. I think that uh, would, yes, I think so it, that's basically that's the way uh, you know what you describe, right? It's like let's repeat the ideas exactly in the way it was in the past, but let's just make building it much more efficient because we don't have to build it anymore, right? It's built already. I mean, uh, LLM okay. has all these connections, and right, so we can just prompt it. That's one way. But I, like I said, the next kind of step is to create a dialogue. So instead of just uh, advising you a new set of problems, it will engage in a dialogue with you discussing your work that you've already done, like literally discussing. So, but yeah, mm -hmm. I understand that, but we cannot learn only by having a conversation, right? We need oh. at some point to sit down oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. right? But, so, but this conversation, uh, we are, mm -hmm. go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, but the conversation, what does, it, what does that lead to? The conversation uh, leads to a significant reduction of the time you need to, to really learn these concepts. And in the end, if you do this kind of concept inventory test, like the qualitative test, people understand this much, much better. So basically, uh, this kind of idea cycle, right? So you can, it can be long, it can be tedious for a student because it's constantly need to like, continue solving problems and whatnot. And, but also there is no reflection there. There is no point of like uh, self-reflection and meta-learning or whatever it's called, right? And uh, Socratic dialogue is all about that. So basically... Uh, it's just, uh, in, in a very primitive sense, right? It's just explain to me why you did this. Like why, you know, if, if there are two formulas in your solution, right? The, I, you do like, uh, here and then from that, uh, like I, the follows that. And if it's not trivial, for example, like explain to me why, or why, why you chose to, to go this path in your solution and not, not the other one. Right. So there was an alternative, for example, explain to me, explain, explain, explain. So that, that's how, that's the dialogue. And again, the, again, from the psychological research, we know that this uh, significantly, at the same time, reduces the time required for a person to master certain concepts and increases the real kind of depth of understanding of, the, of these concepts. And that's the, that's the holy a, grail. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit surprised, actually, by the statement that this is the best way to learn. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not going to say this is not the best way to learn, but personally, when I learn, I need to sit, maybe take a piece of paper, write down some equations, you know, or read a paper on my own, take some time to think about it. You know, like even I do some good thinking by just taking a walk and thinking about it. So the idea that I need to communicate to learn the concept and to uh, understand it better seems uh, a bit strange to me. I mean, I understand that they could be a conversation to spark some thoughts about the problems, but uh, it seems to me that that cannot be the only aspect of that uh, leads to a good learning. No, it's not the only aspect. Of course, you need to work on yourself, but that's a very important aspect. Actually, there's a 
there's a uh, sort of uh, uh, what's it called Const constructive um, basically con uh, social constructivism by Vygotsky. It's a it's a hundred-year-old theory proven you know over and over again that uh, the best way people learn is in groups in social environment mm -hmm. and there needs to be a person uh, who's called a more knowledgeable other, which could be the teacher or at any moment of in time, it could be the other student in the group that actually help you to go through understanding certain concepts. And, and there is also the concept of the uh, zone of proximal development, meaning that there are certain things you can, you can comprehend and you can master, not, but not by yourself, right? So there is a certain sort of... Uh, like if you are here in terms of knowledge, right? There is certain sort of uh, uh, vicinity that you can master all by your own, but there is certain uh, quite sort of larger vicinity that you can master if helped by somebody who actually knows that knows this already, right? And that's how efficient learning happens. So you need to be sort of pulled through this uh, this thing, right? So otherwise, you will just learn slower, and. Uh, even the most genius people I know, the best learning experiences they had, they're always in groups and they're always working on some concrete projects and they're always uh, mentored by somebody, right? So when you say, uh, when you say, so, so if I need to like think and internalize some level, yeah, that's a, that's a part, that's an important part. But in the end, we uh, uh, sort of, uh, we need to be in a social group and, and learn socially and with a mentor. But that's how we, because that's how we learn. That's how evolutionary we evolve, right? So you always learn in a group. Uh, I mean, people lived in, in tribes, uh, usually small ones, and there is always somebody to teach you to do something. There is like a, your father or uncle. I mean, there was no difference, but, you know, 20,000 years ago that will teach you to throw a, you know, spear or to run after, a, you know, a, a, yeah. a gazelle or something and, 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 and so much and so, I mean. And so so when you say, when you say learning in a group, uh, it doesn't mean that we are all sitting in the same room and we always have a conversation about what we learn about, but it can also be about having, when we need to, a community to who we can ask questions uh, about the problem that we are trying to think about or solve, right? Yeah, but ideally you are actually sitting in the same room and doing the same thing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, discussing and, with each other. You're working literally in the same project in a small group of two or three people. And it's not dependent on the specific no, subject? No, not depending on anything. It's, it's just the best, best way to learn. You know, the problem with uh, like IT people don't understand it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to say something politically incorrect for, for IT people. Uh, like uh, developers, they, they think they're actually very smart because they're, gave, they're uh, getting paid a lot of money. Right? So, and, uh, and they think they're, because they're sort of in, a, in our society, who gets more money is they're, they're basically... Uh, is the, I don't know, the person, uh, the right, right person, right? The person who's always right is the person with the most might. So they think the way they work or they operate or whatever is the, is the most efficient or the best one because it leads to a beginning. See how, how much I'm getting, right? And, and you are whatever carpenter and uh, a little carpenter, so now maybe actually getting paid more than programmers even. But anyway, I'm decreasing. Anyway, so, and uh, the way programmers learn, is we write programs, right? I mean, I used to do one, so I'm still getting double. So you write a program and you see the results immediately, right? So this kind of learning loop happens uh, on its own, but simply because it's a, it's a very narrow medium that uh, you can always test your results, right? And you can kind of see where your mistakes were by yourself. 
So it, it still it will still be more efficient actually to learn in a group doing the same thing. And uh, you know, you know the uh, the care programming uh, kind of technique, right? Which is uh, very famous. It actually I discovered that before I read about it. Uh, it's just in eighteen nineteen eighty eight we didn't have enough computers for every student when when I was studying, right? And and me and my buddy, we were developing literally like pair programming. So we were just sitting together, right? And we were kind of, uh, if I have like a block, he would just kind of continue, right? And that's, so we were working together and say, that was extremely efficient, extremely, we were extremely productive. It more, much more productive than if just each of us would just do, you know, their part, right? Basically, right? So I, it's an anecdotal experience, but kind of, uh, in my opinion, it, uh, confirms the the uh, what psychologists are you know telling us have been telling us for a hundred years pretty much. It's, but again, as a developers, we have this learning loop and it's wor it's working for us. It's working pretty well, right? Because we can always test the code, we can see the mistakes. Compiler tells us, you know, the, the tests tells us, and this whole kind of TDD thing is also kind of certain, with a certain discipline. So uh, maybe we have a we have such a decent approximation. Of this tutor already being there by the by, uh, you know the the this compilers and test systems and the unit tests and whatnot that we do they're kind of playing this role and we have like a kind of decent approximation. It's still not by far not there, but uh, we are extracting a pretty good learning experience. Uh, that's but if you're learning like biology, like or whatever, or even I don't know literature, like so you need to talk to people. Even if you're learning math, actually, just math and physics, you need to talk to people. Because in math, like, you cannot just, I mean, some people did, of course, like Ted Perelman or guy who proved the, the Fermat great thrust here. Yeah, you can just be on a farm for seven years doing nothing but just doing this. Uh, things like that happen, but there are exceptions even in math and physics. Most of this stuff, right, is done by people working together in, in, uh, in confined spaces, like Manhattan Project, for example. Do you think Manhattan Project could be done if people would just send home, write formulas, and then come back with your ideas, and then kind of uh, go home back and and, uh, and come back again? I think it will take uh, it would have taken significantly longer. Anyway, sorry, um, go ahead. But there's a there's a difference between uh, brainstorming ideas and solving a problem. To me, it's not the same thing. When we talk about pair programming, we are not learning; we are solving a problem. And pair programming is good to go fast into solving a problem, which is not the same thing than learning. So it's uh, true. It's funny because best way to learn is solving because, problems, actually. Yeah, but it's not because you came up with a solution to a problem that you learned something. So uh, that's a bit surprising what you tell you, you you say to me. I mean, what you're saying because um, it does not fit with my experience. So, for example, I would, I could consider two things that I've learned. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time learning about math, and I spent quite a bit of time learning about English, for example, learning to speak English. I'm not great at it, but, you know, still had to go through this process to learn it. And uh, definitely, when it comes to language, it's much easier to learn about it by having a back-and-forth conversation with somebody. Right? That's the best way to learn uh, a language. When it comes to mathematics, uh, I learned it by uh, being stuck on problems and really spending time on my own trying to 
come up with a solution. And very often when I, I am in a group and I try to get the solution from somebody else, I don't get that deep learning experience that I would have if I spent really the time to uncover what are the intricacies of the complexity of the problem to get, come up to a solution. And it's where my brain tends to really connect things when I solve a problem, when I really spend time getting to the depth of a problem to solve it myself. And many times in the past, like in high school or uh, in college, I was in a setting where I was, let's say, in a, uh, I remember working in a lab, in a lab course where we were in pairs of students, and we were supposed to do, let's say, an experiment. I, w I studied physics, so it was like physics experiment. And I can tell you that that experience has been one of the poorest experience when it comes to learning for me, because first of all, we have, uh, you know, we don't focus as much. We, we tend to have a bit, a bit more fun uh, pairing with another student. And uh, very often, you know, we let the other uh, solve one aspect of the problem. Uh, the, I solve one other aspect of the problem. And in the end, we get results, but we both have a partial understanding of the different concepts that relate, that related to the specific uh, experiments we were trying to, to, to put together. So okay. uh, what you're saying to me is, is somewhat disconnected from my own experience. And I have to say that I am somebody that really spent a lot of time learning about things. I'm not saying that I know everything about it, but I'm saying that I have some experience about what it means to learn. So I'm a bit surprised about uh, oh, your... You have the experience of learning by yourself. You actually don't have an experience of what, what, yeah, what I described, right? I, Learn, I have. Learning in a group with a mentor. And uh, I have. They, no, no, the, the, the test needs to be challenging enough. Remember I told you, right, so there is something you can do by yourself on your own. There is something in ZPD, Zone for Proximal Development, that you cannot do on your own. You need help. And that's where actually the learning happens. But usually the, this kind of, the, this kind of labs that you described, the, those are trivial. I mean, for, for people of, um, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, I don't know, for, for who are understand anything in, about physics, right? It, it's just not challenging enough. So it's trivial. Yeah. For trivial things, you don't need to, you, need, you don't need anybody. It actually kind of becomes a, a helpful because you can just do it because you already know 100% how to do it. If you don't know how to do it, then it actually becomes. So, you know, in, in like mathematicians, I don't know, they have seminars regular, regular right? Like weekly usually uh, to discuss uh, stuff that they're working on with people who sometimes don't even in, in the same field. I mean, they are kind of, right? But it's just, uh, it's just you need to verbalize it and you need to hear some ideas from other people. And that's how you learn. That's how you learn. That's how you get insights. That's how you get like, you get like you can, you, I don't know, connections in your brain and whatnot. I, I do not disagree with that. You, you need to have some interaction with a community of people that learn about the same su subject or knows about the same subject. But it doesn't mean that you need to be in contact with that community 100% of the time. Uh, I no, think no, that it can be true. For, mm -hmm. Well, you said that uh, 
it's better to sit all the time with the different people in the same room and to have that group learning experience. Not but, all, uh, not, okay, not, not all the time, not 100% of the time, but it needs to be a very substantial part of your time, 50%, 30%, I don't know, something like that. So basically, it needs to be a constant experience, right? It needs to be a, a constant experience. So it, it's, it's not like you get together once a week, right? And, and whatever. So if, you, if you're trying to actually learn something, try and just get together once a week for like mathematicians for seminars because they're, they're super pros already and, and they basically don't need that much help in, uh, in between these weeks, right? But, but, uh, but, and also they can enjoy working on this hard stuff. And, and then, so for, I can, I can give you an example. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, when they train kids for international mathematics, Olympiads and physical Olympiads, those, those two I know, like I, I have like some experience and uh, during, and uh, uh, they always train in groups. It's, it's never okay. like uh, people get individual mentors that just train them, or maybe they go from like one mentor to, to another. And it's not because there is not enough mentors. There's plenty of, I mean, you have like a team of 10 kids from a country of, of uh, 300 million people, 200 million, or half of 1.5 billion people, right? Which is like India or China, right? And there's only 10 kids and uh, you can, you can find plenty of mentors. Still, it's always a group experience because it's, it's again, these guys know that group learning just works better. When kids working on so, these problems together, but problems are super non-trivial, right? So, I mean, they need to crack those problems are super hard. And that's why learning happens. If you're working on trivial things, yes, no learning because you already know. I think that makes more sense to me. But the key point is really, like you said, having people that you can work with time to time on a regular basis it has to be somewhat consistent but you also need time that you can spend on your own to build your own understanding of things oh yeah yeah that goes with the thing of course yeah i mean well <laughs> well but we di we didn't say it we didn't say it so that's that's uh, that's what uh, was confusing to me okay i think okay, we, we ended up discussing sense. pedagogy actually pedagogy and psychology more than ai uh but <laughs> yeah i'm curious to know the one thing if i if i, if I may ask uh, Ilya. so that's a you know, really interesting uh, use case of course uh what i'm interested to know or rather curious to know is you know how do you evaluate your ITS system because every learner is different right uh and i mean kind of mentoring or teaching is not one size fits all kind of thing uh, so every learner will be, you know, learning in their own, you know, own, own speed or own pace. So how do you evaluate this ITS system, Maryland based ITS system that you're developing? Uh, just by experiments. You, you do experiments on, on people, basically, and students, right? And that's why it takes years to validate uh, that the system is good. And that's, that's another, actually. So let's, let, let me quickly mention another, other applications of AI potentially, potential applications, right? So for example, as a synthetic student. So there were experiments on building synthetic students before for ITS, exactly like a counterpart for ITS, right? So basically the idea is you, you build a model of like a, a human uh, perception system, right? So basically like a, of, of a cognitive, of, of a cognitive learning, you build a model of a human basically, right? That you're trying to teach. And you vary some parameters. So you basically come up with like some sort of diversity in terms of their, I don't know, knowledge and cognitive uh, abilities and whatnot, right? And then you try to teach them. Uh, before ChatGPT, before this kind of uh, really, uh, you know, marvelous uh, to, to some extent uh, capabilities in processing text, it was very, very hard. Now you can basically make ChatGPT talk to another instance, right? And actually it will be some kind of approximation. 
that's another kind of uh, direction of research that is currently uh, currently being undertaken. Is that can we now test these kind of uh, you know ideas much more, uh, much much quicker and with much higher fidelity, right? Without actually testing it on humans. The problem with testing on humans is actually there is an ethical aspect because if you if you say if you take one group of students of like you have like three classes of thirty people right and two of them are studying in a classic way and then another one is subjected to this ideas and whatnot uh, you're putting them in in an unfair position right so some of them will be uh, sort of either better or worse off in the end which is not I mean you you sort of you're not supposed to do that. Right. So if you are in the university, you're supposed to teach everybody equally and give them an equal, equal level of uh, sort of experience. And uh, by doing this, you're actually automatically sort of putting them at the advantage or disadvantage. I don't know, depending on how good your ATS is. Uh, right. So that, that's a so synthetic student as well. Another big thing actually is uh, just uh, uh, building materials and grading and, and grading given feedback. Right. So ATS is the like, Socratic tutor is an ideal way of giving feedback. But sometimes you just need to go through whatever they've written, whether it's the physics, physics or mathematical problems, right, or essays, and give them a good, thorough feedback on what they've done and and a, and a great and a great. And currently, it's again, it's not actually done very well. Can GPT do? Can large language models do it? Probably they can do it better. Uh, can they do it uh, at the consistently at the same level of good human? We we don't know yet, right? But constructing material, like how do you prepare for class? All this kind of, how do you actually, so you have a, uh, when you, like, when you're building a course, it's like writing a mini textbook, right? So, uh, uh, and most of it is kind of routine, because if you know what you're going to teach, uh, then basically filling it with uh, words and phrases and whatnot, it, it actually seems to be much less of a uh, intellectual effort than actually coming up with a system of concepts that you want to teach, right? And that, again, that's where artificial intelligence can help. LLMs, again, can help you. Not that they can write a course for you, like, at once, at one go, but you can interact with them, right? And, and probably uh, come up with this course much quicker than if you would just, you know, if you had just done it by yourself completely, especially when it comes to, uh, uh, and, for example, the, 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 the big part of it is visuals, right? Currently, visuals are not very good. I mean, Midjourney is the best one. So the AI image generators, especially for like scientific subjects, they are kind of not there yet at all, right? So so if you, so my sort of the way, my, my I don't know, attempt to joke about it is that if Midjourney is actually the best of them, and if, if you give a prompt to Midjourney and it gives you back the results, you go like, huh, I'm not sure it's actually what I asked for, but it, it, it's kind of fun to watch. I mean, it's nice to watch. Yeah. And all the other models, like stable diffusion and whatnot, you give it a prompt, it, it comes back and yeah, it's like, they, like, this is this is some crap basically, right? So uh, if you ask it to, uh, if you ask it for a scientifically correct image, it will never give it to you. Uh, but like it, it should be, right? I mean, it, it, it shouldn't be that hard because there are plenty of, plenty of images in the training database, uh, scientifically correct and whatnot. So that's another basically area. It's just quickly, how can we quickly create and update courses with high quality uh, material and high quality visuals, uh, and, and, and so on. So, uh, right. But the, so the, mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is that with generative AI, we can generate stuff, but we don't have a good way to assess is that stuff is correct or not. Is that what you were saying with mid journey and stable diffusion? 
Uh, we, we do have a way to assess it. It's just a teacher who sits in front of a screen, right? But uh, okay. otherwise, uh, uh, so with, with text, we're actually doing pretty well, right? So yeah. a, a teacher, usually to write a, a, a course, it's like a full-time job for like a year because usually they mm. do, they're developing slowly, right? So people have thoughts in their minds and they are slowly developing their courseware, uh, presentations and text and whatnot. And, and by the time actually, it, uh, okay, so a year I may be like, I may be all exaggerating, but still by the time it actually takes a, sh- a shape of a full kind of product, I would say, right? That you can actually give to somebody. It, it, it's a long time, especially in university, right? Because people usually talk in the university and then they write it down and whatnot and make notes. Uh, build presentations. It actually literally takes years uh, in most of the cases. Yeah. Now with this, that we can do what. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think what I understood from you, Adia, is maybe you know uh, how do you explain a concept uh, visually, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah, example, yeah. you know, if you want to understand you know neural network, for example, you know the how do you initialize in you know, a weights and biases? How do you do forward propagation, backward propagation, in a visual way? And uh, these, you know, models are not there yet to create that kind of visualization. Yeah. And that is what actually I learned. You know, I learned it. I'm a visual learner. I learn you know, things visually first before I go into the mathematical details, you know, to understand the intuition behind those algorithms. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, um, uh, there are many different ways. I mean, I think these models are not there yet that you write a prompt and it will give you those kind of visuals. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Damien does a great job in explaining those in the concepts visually in his newsletter. Damien and I does, also share, yeah. and I also share you know, visual resources on my LinkedIn as well. I've been sharing for a few months now to understand this you know, mathematical concepts in a visual and interactive and intuitive way. Yeah, exactly. And uh, especially when when you want the the visualization to be interactive, right? So you want like an interactive simulation, simulation basically. That's yeah. where completely far away, but the, even just the static picture is actually very hard to get from, from these models. Uh, text is easier to get. So for text, for example, right, I can sit down in front of ChatGPT and with a few iterations, uh, it's kind of tedious, but in the end, it will still take significantly less time for me to create a, a text for the course, right? And then I need to, uh, then it would, I would just kind of basically be sitting down and writing it from my head. Uh, but, uh, for the, for the images, we're not there yet, complete. I mean, it, it's uh, much easier, much easier and better, higher quality to just go on a Google and search for an image than to yeah. ask the model to generate. Whether it comes to uh, any, basically pretty much any scientific concept or engineering concept to understand. Uh, and that's actually another area of a uh, very good sort of application of AI. Yeah, a question for Damien. I mean, if you can share, you know, how, how, the, how do you create those images? Those are very, you know, visually appealing. Do you use some kind of models? Uh, like what uh, I, I I use Canva, so I started to use Draw.io Draw.io to to make those images, and I ended up to use more and more Canva, uh, Canva Canva.com, and uh, yeah, I mean uh, the it's not about the software, it's uh, more about the format. I think uh, I started to publish those diagrams on LinkedIn. And to be able to uh, bring the attention of people, I had to build images or diagrams that were concise, but also useful in, in one image. And it's something that you usually don't do in most other media. Like if you write a, a scientific article, or if you write a textbook, or if you write a, some, some explanation, you know, like a text explanation about something, 
you don't try to be extremely concise because you can actually expand on yeah. what you explain by having multiple images. But in a, on a social media, you need to be able to have all the information on one image. And it has to be useful for people to, you know, to get, uh, to be excited about it. So that's what taught me to make those images, I guess, to try to make sure that when I build an image, it's concise and there's no unnecessary information. Everything that is there is useful for a learning experience. And I would say that uh, we, you know, we learn a lot in a visual manner. We learn a lot by looking at images. But uh, we also learn a lot by making things, meaning that I learned myself a lot by making those images. So I need yeah. to make sure that I understand enough the subject to build an image, a diagram that is concise enough and accurate enough to trans uh, provide the, the right information. And uh, this was a great learning, is also a great learning experience for me. So uh, it, it helped me uh, learn a bit even more about the subject, yeah. more than just looking at images in a passive manner. So being active really helped me learn more about the subject that I'm trying to educate people on. So I yeah. think it really, I mean, the, I mean, those models are not there yet to create them in like, you know, uh, pictures. No, 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 no. <laughs> And that's, with, that's with images, uh, but also, you know, if you, if you, uh, but that's, remember I, I told you in the very beginning that to any expert, when they try to extract like an expert quality work from any of these models, even, even, uh, at the level of text right now, right. Uh, it actually, it's not satisfactory to any of that because you have, people have certain style or people know how to write more sort of uh, in a more engaging way and whatnot, right? And, and what OLM gives you is like just an, uh, sort of the mainstream kind of how most of the people do it, right? It's basically what's the most of the text on the internet are. And the most of the text on the internet generating by people who didn't uh, pour their souls, so to speak, into, into creating it. So the, the, the material they learn from yeah. is already not super high quality. And by the way, I suspect a lot of texts right now are already generated by an LLM or with the help of LLM. So it basically makes it makes the situation worse, right? <laughs> and so, For sure. uh, yeah, so that's, that's actually a big problem. How do we teach LLM to learn from the best and what, what the best is? But I think uh, it's not the right approach to think uh, about the LLM on its own when it comes to education, because an LLM... Uh, has some knowledge, has some memory. He remembers uh, what he was trained on, but uh, there's a limitation when it comes to the data at, you know, until what date the data was provided, the training data was generated. And uh, there will be some uh, cutoff date uh, until which the LLM remembers some facts about a specific subject. So specifically about education, I would not rely on a LLM on its own to be able to uh, understand and establish facts or through a, through a discussion with a student. I would, I would uh, actually make sure that 
I use a LLM not as a knowledge base, but as a natural language processing layer that would be able to understand where to look for the information instead of thinking about the LLM itself as an information bank. I think it's much more efficient to actually continuously update a typical database of information, a knowledge base, uh, a knowledge database, or you know, a simple database of information that you can easily update on a daily basis uh, and have the LLM being able to push that information, process it, and uh, convey uh, you know, an explanation, an answer to a student through a conversation by using that information that is up to date and that has been hand selected by experts. Oh, I so I would not, I would, okay. I, re, I would really not rely on the LLM as an information bank. I would rely on the LLM as a way to understand uh, natural language, being able to make a decision on what is the best place to look for the information that is asked by the human question. And uh, it's good at taking some text information and it's going to improve by being able to utilize additional type of uh, information like visual information to um, extract that information and process it to provide a, a concise answer to a potential student. So I think that would be right now the best way to use LLMs uh, as, a, as a layer, as a natural language layer to interact with softwares where the right information may be. For the teacher, yeah, well, yeah, in general, I agree. Yes, at this moment, right, we uh, it, it is the most uh, the most sensible way to use it. The question of the course, uh, can it can it improve, right, like further, and how much? So mm. the question is, will will there be a breakthrough when uh, at least for certain scenarios, a lamb can uh, sort of can emulate the, the human teacher sufficiently well? Uh, Currently, it's it kind of almost impossible. The teacher may, may use a, a, a model, like you said, right, to sort of uh, come up to, to improve their materials or maybe to just kind of get some kind of, uh, you know, like, I don't know, guys, if you remember House MD TV series doc, about Dr. House. Uh, yeah, I guess. 20 yeah. years ago, you remember. Uh, yeah, Mr. Jig is too young. So, uh, basically, long <laughs> story short, uh, a genius doctor needed to have five uh, less genius doctors just to talk to them, mm -hmm. right? Not because they would actually give them any good ideas, but just because they would produce some, basically, I don't know, they would just produce, you know, sounds, right? So to speak, they would just talk about it. Mm. And somewhere in between, he would just, uh, it would cause some kind of association to go off in his head and he would come up with the right answer. Right, but that's actually back to the group line, right? But he actually needed like five people to talk to him on a regular basis to, in the end, ignore them. But whatever they were saying was just useful for your thinking process. So that's basically currently, I think, Damien, you were kind of hinting on the same thing, right? That's basically currently the most maybe efficient way to use LLMs for creative people is not to rely on their output, but sort of to just use them, whatever they're producing, to 
inspire your own thinking process. Uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm just saying, no, I'm not exactly saying that. I'm okay. saying that this is a layer uh, between the human and potential software. Software that can ah, okay. uh, contain a lot of useful information. You know, like if you have a database of textbooks, it's going to be hard for a human to find the right, the right query to get the right information to the question the human may have. And uh, LLM is actually very good at understanding. LLM is very good at taking a human question and translating it into the right query to query the information from the database. And if you actually instruct the LLM to be a Socrates, uh, let's say, teacher, and you augment it by providing it with the right information, it's going to actually being able to distill the right information and provide it little by little to the student in the way that is useful in that Socrates type learning. But uh, you, you, you need to augment the LLM and you need to tell the LLM that the information needs to come from a trusted source instead of as the LLM to pull its information from its own programming. I think the LLM is good at following some instructions. It's good at uh, translating from human language to maybe some other software language and being able to interact with other softwares. But I would not trust uh, it as an information bank. I, okay, I agree with you. I agree with you there too. Yeah, wholeheartedly. And so, yeah, yeah that, that's the situation we're in right now. So let's let's change a, a bit of subject. Yeah. Uh, but Bashka, I'm I'm actually yeah. curious. You you're teaching on Coursera. Yeah, that's right. So I thought that only professors could teach on Coursera. Oh no, it's not like that. So basically, you know what happened was, I mean, when Coursera launched back in 2012, uh, I was in you know still in college, and I took some mm -hmm. time off and you know started you know enrolling on, in these courses. And over the last, you know, or few years, I mean, I have finished more than 200, you know, courses on courses with certificates. And, nice. you know, I part of, I was part of, you know, the beta testing group and so on. And then they, you know, asked me, will you be willing to or interest to teach at Coursera? So that's how I got to, you know, uh, opportunity to teach at Coursera. So back in few, few years back, they launched a project called Guided Projects. Uh, so you can, okay. you know, teach kind of projects and you can teach regular courses and you don't have to be a university professor. I see. So it's more like a TA? No, 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 no. You are, you are the, you, you are the, you know, uh, person who is teaching, not, not basically TA. Uh, you can teach the regular courses and you can teach the guided projects as well, not TA. I mean, you are the only person who is developing the entire course, coming up with, you know, questions, you know, using those evaluation metrics that they have internally. And you do, you do the lectures as well? Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's great. I, I may ask you for some advice. I didn't know that uh, regular people, non-accredited uh, uh, professors could actually do it. Uh, no, you can. That's great. That's great. I, I used to be addicted to Coursera. You, ha you, you have yeah. uh, 200 certificates. I, I don't have as many, but uh, when I came out of my PhD, I felt I knew nothing else but physics. And mm -hmm. I started to take as many courses as I could on Coursera. And uh, I was uh, addicted to that knowledge that I could not learn, you know, by the typical education. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, uh, it's, a great, uh, it's a great place to, to learn. Right? 
Right. I mean, me too. I mean, I also also never addicted to Coursera. Not only Coursera, I like Udacity as well. Uh, they have been a very nice pedagogy to teach about, you know, different uh, difficult topics uh, to understand in an easy way. And I also like, you know, DataCam because DataCam has tried to do something like, you know, what Ilya have been trying to do within, you know, ITS. So they use some concept called gamified learning. I mean, they, you know, will not ask, you know, let you go to the next chapter unless you finish the current chapter, the evaluation. So there is something, you know, which, uh, you know, helps you to bring or to, you know, understand the, or create the muscle memory that you need to learn mm-hmm. programming. So that's, uh, you know, they, they come for you. They have, you know, went in this uh, gamified learning uh, philosophy very nicely in their platform. And I was, you know, equally addicted to all these three platforms, you know, back in, you know, a few years back. Coursera, Udacity, and camp. But now there are so many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. So you're uh, quant, right? Yeah. A quant uh, data scientist. Right. So tell me more about that. Like, uh, what does that yeah, exactly sure. mean? Yeah, so uh, I work at you know, BlackRock. BlackRock is the world's largest mm-hmm. asset manager. And again, you know, what will be mm-hmm. speaking is you know my own you know personal experience. Not I'm not speaking on my employer's you know, behalf. Uh, so you know all the finance companies traditionally they were always data heavy in this way. They always have you know data and they always used to build models uh, to create trading signals. Uh, but machine learning is very new to this industry. I mean before machine okay. learning also. Yeah, yeah. I mean there used to be econometricians. Who are more of you know statistical modeler, you know use you know statistics you know uh, linear, simple linear regression or you know GAM models etc. Uh, to create uh, you know signals in the for to you know trade in the markets. But machine so, learning. Sorry, will, sorry. Yeah. The, the goal here is to uh, trade stocks. What yeah. Yeah. So it is an investment management. Yeah, it is an investment mm. management. So in investment management, we basically manage you know clients' money. And clients can be, you know, for example, some, you know, insurance company, you know, some government, you know, so, or, you know, any other, uh, you know, fund, for example, that you are managing, you know, the money for. And uh, uh, doing data science or doing machine learning is very different in finance compared to other industry. Uh, because, you know, in finance, we are taking very highly risky decision, right? We're managing people's money. If we make a mistake, you know, well, you're, you're losing, you know, money, right? So... Uh, we are not, when we build models, we are not only, you know, focusing on predictions alone. We also try to understand what is the uncertainty associated with the model prediction. Yeah. You know, should I trust or, you know, when to trust or when not to trust the model output. And not only that, we also care about interpretability as well. Because all these models are being actually used by portfolio managers or the risk managers or the traders. Uh, they will, you know, uh, find it difficult to use unless and until they understand how the model is making a decision, right? So, you know, uh, in order to use, you know, machine learning, uh, we do, do not only care about the prediction, we also care about the other pieces of, you know, modeling uh, aspects as well. And as I said, uh, machine learning to finance is not that mature compared to other industry like, you know, retail and you know, e-commerce, etc. As I said, you know, this industry used to be, uh, in most of the modeling used to be, you know, done by econometricians, uh, where they mostly do, you know, statistical modeling to generate trading signals. Uh, for example, let's say, you know, uh, or not only trading signals, also for risk management purposes, predicting liquidity risk yeah. or, you know, predicting, you know, default risk, prepayment risk, etc. Uh, so, you know, and another aspect, how, what makes finance different from other industries, we deal with time series data sets. And uh, time series data sets are not IID. 
Uh, so you cannot use, you know, those some of those traditional techniques as it is. For example, if we talk about cross validation, right, uh, to tune hyperparameters, mm. you cannot use yeah. the, the you know, as it is, or you know, the way you divide the train test data, you cannot use the you know the randoms, you know, uh, division of the right. So there are so many things in finance which you have to deal in a different way compared to other domains. So this is a very interesting area. I mean, uh, it is not yet matured and there are so many, you know, um, areas of improvement is there. Uh, for example, we also care about, you know, causal explanation. This is again a very active area of research right now. How do you, you know, find out causality uh, between uh, some events? Uh, for example, you know, let's say Silicon Valley Bank collapse, you know, this year in the month of, you know, mm-hmm. March. Uh, can you predict it, you know, a few days in advance? If you can do this, you know, then, you know, you can make a lot of money. Uh, you already know, you know what's, uh, what's going to be uh, happening in the next couple of days. And also coming to generative AI, I mean, uh, as, you know, Ilya have you know, mentioned already, I mean, generative AI has a lot of use cases, right? I mean, it can be used for, you know, in, 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 in many, all the, all, including all the domains, so, you know, in a specific organization, think about in you know, HR, maybe HRs can use when screening, you know, candidates' resumes uh, using generative AI, maybe you know, your client servicing teams can respond to your client queries in a much faster way. But uh, as a quant data scientist, our objective is to use LLM uh, for you know uh, creating training signals. Uh, so how can you use you know generative AI? So one of the use cases, you know, that uh, you know many uh, investment managers are you know trying to find out is you know, how do you create a how do you augment your you know, traditional feature space. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, it is in, you know, public uh, domain as well. Uh, so, for example, you know, we predict in liquidity. Uh, what is a liquidity score of a particular security to be traded, you know, tomorrow? And generally, I work in fixed income market. Uh, if you have some idea about fixed income, is a little bit different from equities market, where equity market is more transparent. They trade it over mm-hmm. exchanges. But fixed income market, they trade over OTC market, over the counters. So there is a lack of yeah. transparency. So for example, let's say you are a fixed income trader and you want to buy or you want to sell a particular bond, let's say corporate bond, then you have to go to the market makers or the counterparties or the broker dealers. And here in this case, uh, the market makers or the broker dealers will be investment banks, investment banks like you know, Goldman or JP Morgan or Citibank, etc. So you would talk to them over the counter, maybe using some Bloomberg terminal or you know those kind of trading venues. And then you talk to them, okay, I want to sell this. Can you quote me at what you, at price you want to buy? So there is lack, lack of transparency. And because of lack of transparency, the price that you make it uh, is not a fair price of the bond. So they might charge in a very high price. So how do you know that they are not ripping you apart by quoting a very high price? So that's where machine learning comes in. Can you use machine learning to predict the fair price? And the quotes that you're getting for the market makers is very different. Then you should not go ahead with the transaction. Or, you know, um, for example, another model that we have is, you know, predicting liquidity risk. Uh, when this uh, global financial crisis happened in, you know, U.S. Uh, 2007-8, after that, there has been, you know, rule uh, by the regulator that if you're a mutual fund provider in U.S., then along with every mutual fund, you need to mention, you know, uh, how much liquid that fund is. Is it highly liquid? Is it highly illiquid? Or is it moderately liquid and so on? Based on the regulation. Yeah. How how is uh, you said that the LLM helps you build some yeah. some features like, like right, how, right. how does that does that right right so how so here right so right now all of these models you know predicting fair prices or you know um, predicting liquidity 
we don't generally use any text-based features. Uh, for yeah. example, just to give you an example, as of now, you know, we don't use any text-based features, but just to give you an example, that fe those features are also important. Uh, for example, back in 2021, um, there was an event happened. I mean, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, he was in a press conference. And in that press conference, he actually, you know, removed or switched uh, two Coca-Cola bottles by water bottles, yeah, right? Yeah, I remember. And when remember. this news actually broke, uh, not exactly on the same day, but after some day, few, two, three days, you know, after, Coca-Cola actually lost $4 billion in market cap. So this is the mm. impact of news some stocks have, right? Again, you know, mm. uh, not all news that has been published for Coca-Cola will be impactful or have, you know, you know, capability of moving the prices. But some have capability of moving the prices. So now, you know, if you know that, you know, Coca, you know, this has a, this event has happened, maybe everybody will be trying to sell a Coca-Cola bonds or maybe, you know, in that case, it will increase the demand and maybe, you know, uh, it will change, it will, you know, have an impact in the price of that bond as well. Yeah. Or it will have, it will have impact on liquidity of that bond as well. So now if you want to, you know, find out first, you know, before you want to find out the sentiment, first you need to find out the, you know, those news articles which are relevant because not all news articles will be relevant to you, right? Some of them can be relevant, some of them can be, may be relevant. So think about an era where there is no LLM. Without, you know, the pre-LLM era, if you want to solve this, then you might, you may have to build a model to, you know, find out which one is relevant, which one is not. Or maybe to find out sentiment, you again need to build a model, uh, positive sentiment, negative sentiment, and so on. But now... You know, you can generate features on the fly. Maybe you come up with some themes, you know, based on these themes, you find out this news is relevant. And if it is relevant, you just, you know, label it as one. If the, if the positive sentiment is positive or you label it as, you know, negative one if the sentiment is negative. And not only sentiment, also the news story counts. You know, how many, you know, story, how many news stories have been published by several, you know, media houses. That is also a very good predictor of, you know, liquidity of a particular bond. So now with the help of Generative AI, it has now become very much easier to create, you know, these kind of features at scale, you know, without training any such, you know, model. So that's what, yes, you know, we have been, these are some of the experiments that we are performing and results seems to be promising at this now. Yes, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I had uh, one question because you said that machine learning is new in mm -hmm. the world of finance. Uh, so... You, you, what you're doing is portfolio management. Am I correct? Yeah, right. That's right. Uh, but uh, there's maybe another side of finance, which is high frequency trading, for example, which yeah. is, I think, very different. Yes. Uh, I, I would assume that machine learning has been very useful for a long time there. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't see, you know, much, you know, research there in high frequency trading. Maybe, you know, they have been doing machine learning. But uh, when I see, you know, some papers, especially in finance, I don't see, you know, much of the research that has happened. Uh, for example, I think people have been trying to do reinforcement learning. I see a lot of, you know, reinforcement learning papers as well, you know, in mm -hmm. high frequency trading or, you know, to, you know, build smart order router, you know, which way to direct your, your orders to. Uh, but again, I see only those, you know, in papers. In implementation, you know, very few companies have been able to do real implementation, I guess. Again, I'm not, you know, sure, but uh, I don't see, you know, real world implementation of those or you know, algorithms in finance. Because as I said, I mean, you know, in, in, in finance, you know, as I said, right? I mean, we care, not only care about, you know, uh, the model output, we also care about a lot of things like, you know, interpretability, uncertainty, 
And also the quality of the data is also very important. And because in finance, the noise to signal ratio is very high. The data sets are not that you know, of high quality. So another aspect is the data sets are also very sparse. Uh, for example, fixed income, they don't trade very often like equity. I mean, if you have a bond, mm. uh, then maybe that bond, you know, maybe trading every one month or every two months. Mm. So that brings up a lot of other challenges as well, that how do you handle the yeah. part, the quality, etc. Yeah, yeah. Well, to come back to high frequency, which mm -hmm. can trade multiple times per second, mm -hmm. uh, you you cannot have a human taking the yeah. time to yeah. assess the, the risk yeah. visually, you know, with some numbers, and to try to understand the interpretability of mm. what a model would come up with, right? Right. It has to to be done in an algorithmic fashion. Mm. And there being a lot of uh, strategies, like algorithmic strategies, to yeah. to do some high frequency trading, I right. I would assume that uh, a machine learning algorithm would have its place when it comes to making decisions about. I the think trade. Uh, you're right. I mean, in high frequency trading, you know, you're right that we do algorithmic trading, but I think it's not that machine learning algorithm. It's maybe, you know, simple rule-based, you know, algorithm, you know, let's yeah. say uh, the bid ask kind of spread uh, between, you know, the prices. If it is, you know, certain basis point, then you do buy or then you do sell. Yeah, maybe those kind of, you know, simple heuristics or rule-based algorithms they have run the hood. But I don't think machine learning, they use machine learning there as of now. I don't think so. Okay, well, uh, you, you, I remain suspicious a bit about that, that statement, so. I will uh, I will look yeah. a, a bit at uh, if some other people say the same thing. So yeah. to come back to portfolio ma management, which is what you do, right? Mm -hmm. um, what type? What type? Be beside LLMs, what type of machine learning models algorithms are you using? Yeah, yeah. So you know, mostly you know. Um, I mean, in the time of experimentation, we experiment, you know, all the you know, available you know, methodologies that we can try just to see, you know, how much additional benefit we can use, we can get by using neural networks, for example, right? Uh, but again, you know, neural networks, we don't deploy in production, although we do some experimentation because of the same reason of, you know, interpretancy, et cetera. But generally, you know, we use uh, three based models, mostly three based models okay. in production. But if you talk about the econometricians, they will always use, you know, statistical models, like simple linear regression or, you know, yeah. um, you know the GAM models, because their mindset is very different. Uh, they, you know, come from a different school of thought and the machine learning professional, their mindset is different. And uh, although random forest is also not, you know, um, a very um, interpretable by design, but you can certainly use, you know, post hoc explanation tools like, you know, SHAP, uh, which is the same art right now. Uh, to, you know, explain at an individual level prediction. But again, there are, you know, a few more, you know, other, uh, you know, techniques available. Um, and there are different different definitions of, uh, you know, interpretability as well, right? Like causal, you know, interpretation, which SHAP cannot give you right now. But these yeah. are some activities of, you know, research, uh, which, you know, we're trying to, you know, uh, solve and trying to implement in real world application. But yeah, it is mostly, you know, three-based models that goes to production. So so tree-based models, that means that it's a supervised learning algorithm. Yeah. And right. uh, what are you trying to predict when you try to optimize portfolio? Yeah, so portfolio optimization directly does not use, you know, um, uh, this machine learning. 
but machine learning is a subset of portfolio optimization. For example, in portfolio optimization, you want to maximize, you know, uh, you know, returns uh, while minimizing risk uh, subject to some constraints. And those constraints may be, for example, liquidity risk is one such, you know, constraint that you don't want risk to be, you know, higher than, you know, certain, you know, points, for example. Now, how do you predict liquidity? That's a you know very difficult you know problem to solve because liquidity has so many dimensions. There is no you know one single definition of liquidity, and that's where you know we do data-driven you know uh, approaches uh, to predict liquidity. Now we have one model to predict liquidity of a bond. Uh, we have one model to predict transaction cost, for example. So transaction cost is another you know important criteria while you know uh, you you build your you know portfolios. For example, you don't want to have your very high transaction cost, all right? So those are, you know, individual models and those models helps you to predict liquidity. Those models helps you to predict, you know, transaction costs. And once a model predicts these numbers, those numbers are being used by portfolio managers while, you know, creating their portfolio, while optimizing their portfolios. I see. So those are pure insights for, yeah. s for human to make a decision. Right. And uh, this, you know, liquidity model, as I mentioned, you know, this is not, this is not the only use case uh, where the portfolio managers use to optimize their portfolio, but there are several other use cases as well. Uh, for example, let's imagine yourself as a portfolio manager uh, and I am one of the investors. Let's say I have invested, you know, some money in your fund and now I see, you know, the market is doing very bad, like, you know, the COVID, you know, situation or the Russian invasion of Ukraine and I got, you know, panic. I, I think that my assets will go down. Then I'll come to you. And I say, okay, I don't want, I don't, I no longer want to get invested. I want my money back. So this is known as, you know, redemption. We call it as redemption risk. So managers also need to find out, you know, uh, what is the redemption risk uh, they might you know, have in next, you know, seven days or next, you know, one month, for example. So that also, you know, one of the use case of liquidity, because if you know the liquidity score of a particular bond, then we can find out, you know, how many days it will take to liquidate a particular asset in or in a bond. Because if the markets are very bad, then everybody tries to sell, but nobody tries to buy, right? So it will go, you know, very illiquid. So it will, go, if it goes very illiquid, then how many days it will take uh, to, you know, uh, liquidate particular, you know, um, asset in a particular portfolio. So, uh, and again, another use case is regulatory requirement, as I mentioned already. Uh, now, nowadays, regulators are, you know, very watchful about these funds because they don't, you know, want that kind of, you know, financial crisis kind of situation that happened in seven eight. You know, they want every fund manager to mention, you know, how much uh, liquidity uh, this particular fund has. Is it highly liquid, you know, less liquid? So those classification we also do. I mean, one of the use. So, I mean, one model, multiple use cases. Um, so my question is this. Uh, when you use supervised learning algorithms, you need to input some features. And in mm -hmm. the context yeah. of uh, portfolio management, what I, I'm guessing is that you have some time series. Right. of assets or stocks. And uh, my question is, so when you use interpretability techniques, what you get is that you get that a specific feature has mm. more impact into predicting right. a specific outcome. So right. how is that How is that useful for a portfolio manager? Right. Yeah, so uh, basically, you know, it, first of all, it brings trust to the portfolio manager. Uh, and uh, for example, let's imagine, you know, uh, we have a model to predict uh, ADV of a uh, corporate bond. ADV stands for average daily volume to be traded tomorrow. Uh, so let's imagine you are the portfolio manager and our model, you know, predicts, uh, let's say tomorrow, uh, 
the ADV for Tesla corporate bond is uh, 5 million uh, USD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the portfolio manager, because they have been in the market for so many years, based on their you know, understanding of the market, they feel that it should not be 5 million, it should be 10 million, or let's say it should be 1 million, for example. Then they will come back to you and ask this question, okay, you know, based on my understanding, it should be 1 million or 10 million, but why your model is predicting as 5 million? Can you tell me why? So there we use uh, this explanation framework. And not only this, I mean, we also ship these models to our clients. We have, you know, more than 100 personal clients who also consume our model output. They also keep asking this kind of you know, questions like, you know, uh, why? I understand the reason for uh, wanting to uh, have an explanation of why we get this kind of prediction. But the model is going to tell you uh, this bond uh, has the most impact to the prediction. How is that useful to explain to the, to the portfolio manager? Oh, yeah. So before we build any kind of model, I mean, yeah, that's a very good question because, you know, uh, in machine learning models, we generally capture correlation, not the causation, right? Uh, so this is this, you know, piece is done even before uh, we start building the model in the brainstorming phase itself. We talk to the portfolio managers, we talk to traders, we talk to risk managers, and we brainstorm, brainstorm with them, you know, what features you want us to, you know, include in the model. Because uh, it should be, you know, not only be predictive of uh, the target variable that we're predicting, but also it helps us to explain the model output. So we involve, you know, the human in the loop uh, while selecting the features. And based on that, their, you know, uh, understanding, we use those features, we experiment with them and whatever are the best features, we keep them. And those features are coming from the end users who is going to use those models. So I'm guessing that you will have two different sets of features. You would have uh, mm-hmm. features that are useful to actually good to get good predictions. Yeah. And yes. you have features that are useful to get uh, good interpretability. Right. Uh, but those, those two sets of features could right. interact in a negative way to provide uh, good interpretability uh, for the prediction, right? Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, but as of now, you know, mainly, you know, whatever processes we follow is we always, you know, talk to our stakeholders first, you know, what is their, you know, understanding of the problem statement. I mean, they come up with the business problem, then we convert the problem into a data problem or into an ML problem. And based on that, we brainstorm the features with them. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, there can be some other features, you know, uh, which might have very good predictive power, but that predictive power may be because of some lurking variable or confounding variable under the hood but they don't have that intuition. If they don't have that intuition, let's say there is a variable XYZ, and we found as a data scientist that XYZ variable or feature has very good predictive power helping us to predict, but they don't understand, they don't relate, they don't relate to XYZ, then most likely we'll not use that feature because we know we want their intuition as well, our end user's intuition as well, you know, while they consume our modern output. Because as I said, mm-hmm. you know, in our world, uh, model output or the accuracy is of course important, but along with accuracy, the interpretability is also very important or the uncertainty is also very important. So this is the process that we generally follow, which is kind of different, maybe from different from you know, other industries. So if a portfolio manager make, makes a decision based on some insights coming out of a machine learning model, whatever mm-hmm. that insight may be, you know, interpreta- yeah. uh, interpretability or some predicted outcome. Uh, is there a world where we can remove completely the human portfolio manager and have a yeah. model 
that utilize those insights to make a decision? No, not as of now. Not as of now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are, you know, some ideas, you know, coming up. I mean, this idea, not new idea, but it has been, you know, there in for so many years called robo-advisors. You know, that, you know, you have a robot, you know, advising you in a way to invest with not to invest. But you don't see, you know, uh, companies like big companies like, you know, BlackRock or even JP Morgan, they have use, you know, in production. Uh, so these ideas are still there uh, in research, but I hardly believe that they have been using in production. And why? Because we are taking very highly risky decisions. Even one mistake you make, you lose, you know, millions of dollars. And the cost is very high. I mean, the cost of error is very high in financial applications. In those applications where cost is not very high, maybe you can completely, you know, remove uh, that particular human element. But in a portfolio optimization, you know, case, I don't think, you know, we are there yet to replace the portfolio managers completely uh, as of now. But I understand that the risk is very high. But uh, if we actually provide to a model all the information that a portfolio ma manager has to make a decision, mm -hmm. uh, we could we could uh, uh, encode the concept of risk in an algorithmic fashion. So that's not something mm -hmm. that is too hard to do. Uh, yeah, why? but there is no. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there is no proper definition of risk, right? Uh, for okay. example, you know. Uh, for example, as I said, you know, uh, that our models, we don't, uh, we have not used, you know, those NLP-based features like the incident that I mentioned to you, mm -hmm. what happened with Cristiano Ronaldo, right? So now, you know, how do you make sure that you, you know, have all of those signals that might impact financial markets, right? And financial markets are very dynamic. For example, you know, one, you know, uh, alpha that you generate, maybe, you know, next month or next week, the same alpha might not be, you know, making you money, uh, for example, right? So... The definition of risk, the definition of you know, rewards or you know, returns keeps on changing you know, in financial markets because of its dynamic nature. Uh, so that's why it's very difficult to you know, define uh, the risk, uh, where, which will be a you know, universal definition. Uh, there is no such universal definition. That's why it becomes difficult uh, to completely eliminate uh, human element from these models. So I think that makes sense that... Uh... We, we don't know how to well-define risk. But I think what you're saying implicitly is that the portfolio manager makes decisions yeah. based on some data right. that is not coming out of a machine learning model or that is not directly uh, inputted into a machine learning model, right? Yeah, right. So not only, yeah, that's right. So portfolio manager is not only, you know, consuming machine learning model. Machine learning model is just one tool in the portfolio manager's tool set. Uh, for example, okay. we predict, you know, transaction cost. We predict, you know, ADV. Now it is up to the portfolio manager whether he wants to use it or not. So it is just that they use it as a tool in their toolbox along with, you know, several other things. But what, what other things uh, uh, the portfolio manager is using to make decisions be, beyond the, the insight coming out of a machine learning model? Yeah, I mean, so basically, you know, portfolio managers also get, you know, directions, you know, from, you know, clients. For example, let's say you are a, okay. you know, you know uh, you're in insurance institute and you have, you know, directed, you have given a mandate to a portfolio manager that, you know, you invest this much amount in this particular thing. You invest that much money in this particular asset. So apart from the machine learning models, or apart from the signals that we generate for them, they also get mandates from their clients and they use those okay. mandates as well while designing their portfolios. So... 
Thank you guys for joining uh, this podcast today. That was a great learning experience for everybody, I think. And uh, I'm looking forward potentially to see you soon again here. So thank you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Yes.